This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is John Fleetham and I'm Professor of Medicine at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. Today I'm joined by Dr. Sanjay Patel, uh, Lucas Donovan, Najib Ayas and Atul Mahotra. Uh, Drs. Patel and Donovan recently wrote an editorial, The COVID-19 Pandemic Presents an Opportunity to Reassess the Value of Polysomnography. And then Drs. Ayers and Mahotra wrote a rebuttal, uh, The Baby, The Bathwater and the Polysonogram, and both of these were published online in the Blue Journal last month. Dr. Patel is Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Donovan is Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Washington. Dr. Ayers is Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of British Columbia, and Dr. Mahotra, Professor of Medicine, University of California in San Diego. Sanjay, uh, can I start with you? What has been the impact of the COVID pandemic on the field of sleep disorder medicine in the US? Yeah, no, there's been uh, overnight uh, an enormous impact on how sleep medicine is practiced. I think we've all realized um, that telemedicine actually works really well in, in the field of sleep. And I think in most clinics, the vast majority of clinical encounters are now happening via telemedicine. Um, in terms of the sleep lab, when the national lockdown happened, I think virtually every sleep lab shut down. And so in-lab sleep studies uh, became impossible to obtain. Um, some labs continue to do home sleep tests. Others uh, stopped that as well. Now, Najib, you've written guidelines for polysomnography in Canada uh, during the COVID pandemic. Is the situation any different in Canada? Well, the situation in Canada is, is uh, very different in my mind uh, for obvious reasons, which I'm not going to uh, bring up at this point, but I think we all recognize what they are. Uh, however, just to kind of move on, uh, I think that, uh, you know, it's very clear that the uh, extent of the pandemic in Canada is much less than that in the United States. In most of the areas in Canada, as, as you know, um, John, the, we're almost in the post-peak phase in that the rates are really going down in most areas. Uh, as such, um, I think Canadians in general are open to reopening some of the sleep-related diagnostic services, which, judging by Dr. Patel's note, seems to be very different than what's happening in the United States. So, for instance, uh, in Vancouver and essentially across Canada, there is a phased reopening of a lot of the sleep-related diagnostic services, not only in terms of level three studies, but also in terms of full polysomnography and in some cases even positive airway uh, titrations uh, with uh, obviously uh, airborne uh, precautions. Uh, I think that partly that's because the rates of uh, community spread in Canada are much less than in the United States at uh, this point. So I think that in general, I think the um, the way that we're dealing with diagnostic sleep services in Canada is different. However, I will reiterate that um, 
you know, we are relying a lot more on telemedicine in the last couple of months. Uh, I agree with uh, Dr. Patel that at least in a lot of cases, the telemedicine seems almost as good as seeing patients in person, especially for follow-up uh, visits. So whether that's going to change the field long-term uh, in Canada as well as in the States, uh, I'm not sure because I think that clearly a lot of patients would probably prefer a lot of the, I don't want to call them virtual visits because they actually are actual visits, but these remote type of visits using technology, I think will be something to uh, consider in the future. Luke, what steps are you taking to make polysomnography safer uh, during and then uh, once the COVID pandemic has passed? Thank you very much, John. Uh, and before I begin, I should say that uh, I'm a very proud employee of the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs. Uh, and uh, the views I express here are my own and do not uh, reflect the VA. Uh, with that being said, um, I can say that we've done a lot of things locally to make uh, PSGs safer. Um, and sleep testing in general safer. Uh, so in March, uh, when there was first uh, evidence of uh, community spread here in Seattle, our sleep lab director, Rule Sharma, and uh, clinic director, Brian Palin, did an excellent job, took decisive action and closed the lab. Uh, in doing so, uh, we went through and converted patients to home testing for diagnosis of OSA wherever it was feasible uh, and you know, deferred in-lab testing where it, was, where it was absolutely not feasible. Uh, and in general, we referred almost all patients who were referred for diagnosis of OSA to home testing. Um, the, uh, the lab has essentially remained closed until about a week ago. Um, and uh, since reopening as part of our state's uh, you know, phase reopening plan, uh, we've remained PSG only uh, and are still being quite circumspect about whom we test. Uh, in the next two weeks, um, barring uh, an increase in local community prevalence, which is uh, not a... Uh, um, which is still up in the air at this point. Uh, we will need. We will. Um, we plan to proceed to um, considering titrations, uh, and doing that, we would only um, use negative pressure rooms. In addition to lab closures uh, during um, PSGs, uh, we've also initiated a system of patient screening uh, at two time points. Uh, first. Patients are called several days in advance before sleep testing uh, to screen them for you know, COVID-19 symptoms, and they're also screened uh, when they arrive for their test. When we um, uh, initiate titration PSGs, whenever that is, uh, we'll also require formal uh, viral swab testing for COVID-19 prior to titration. Uh, and at the same time, you know, consistent with you know, universal masking, um, you know, everyone is wearing a mask, except for the patient, of course. That being said, you know, there are other sites in the VA um, that we work closely with, with who opened earlier than us, uh, particularly in areas where there is lower uh, community prevalence of disease. Um, and they're using slightly different practices to screen patients to reduce the risk of uh, aerosolization. Uh, right now, I think there are, you know, you know many you know, acceptable options that use this general rubric. Uh, I would say the only wrong approach uh, is the tack that some local uh, you know, rare local non-VA sleep labs took, which was to not close at all. Um, you know, we did have a few who did that, and they continued operating like business as usual. Um, that was irresponsible, but otherwise, you know, there's, there's, there's multiple ways to keep people safe. So in Vancouver, we're not doing CPAP titration studies yet. We've yet to be get permission. Um, uh, Luke, you describe what you're doing. Uh, uh, Sanjay or Tell, uh, either of you performing CPAP titrations? And if you are, what precautions are you taking? Sanjay? Yeah, so we just started uh, doing titration studies in the past week. Um, we've decided not to swab patients ahead of time just because the prevalence in Pittsburgh is 
uh, so low that it just didn't seem worth the effort. Um, we are doing similar to what Luke said, um, calling patients uh, twice to make sure they're symptom-free before they come in for the titration. Um, we are uh, also having our technicians use full PPE um, with titration studies, so N95 masks, uh, eye protection, gloves and gowns. Um, and we've decreased the uh, number of rooms that we're doing so that we're only doing one titration study per night um, and only having 50% capacity in our lab at this point. Atul, any different, San Diego? No, I think our uh, uh, approach has been very similar to what's been described. We're preferentially doing home sleep testing, if at all possible. Uh, we're relying on PPE for the uh, people involved. We are testing patients prior to arrival, both in terms of symptoms and in terms of either serology or PCR. Um, we're doing primarily diagnostic polysomnography rather than titrations. We've talked a little bit about doing auto titrations in lab because it may reduce some of the contact exposure time. Arguably, some of those patients could be titrated in the home, but in some cases, people have found that an effective approach. We've been discussing that. And for the most part, we've been doing one-to-one, -one, um, one technician for one uh, patient, although we're planning to ramp that up as well. Interestingly, many patients, even as we reopen, many patients have been reluctant to come in just because of perceived risk or, or fears or concerns, and they don't feel they'll be comfortable in the environment, despite our best reassurance. Yeah, we're having the same problem in Vancouver. I mean, uh, COVID is, is not very prevalent up here at all, but 50% of the patients we're asking are, are declining to come in at the moment. So part of the um, part of the editorial was um, uh, whether we will continue to do the same amount of polysomnography going into the future. And, and at the moment, uh, funding agencies and insurance companies seem to rely on physiologic criteria such as the apnea hypotony index. Um, Atul, how do we change that culture? Well, so part of the goal of the rebuttal, I guess, was to try and defend the polysomnogram, which I did somewhat reluctantly because I'm somebody that's into new technology and uh, forward thinking rather than reverse thinking. So some of the arguments we gave in the uh, response document was that polysomnography does have some value. And it, for example, there's sophisticated analyses that can be done of all the signals that are there. We tend to throw away about 99.99% of the data and just come up with an apnea hypopnea index, which I'll acknowledge you can get from a home sleep test or from probably a wearable technology even. But there's a rich data set there that we largely ignore. And as we do more sophisticated analyses and signal processing, I think we can get more information from that. Uh, in addition, there are some patients where the home testing may be unreliable. They may be highly motivated to avoid a sleep apnea diagnosis, or in some cases, may be highly motivated to obtain a sleep apnea diagnosis. And so in those cases, perhaps relying on symptoms and, and home testing may be uh, inadequate. And then, you know, a lot of disorders that aren't sleep apnea that home testing is not particularly good for, narcolepsy and restless legs and periaculate movements and whatnot. So I, I think there, there, there is a role for polysomnography. Your more specific question, though, is, you know, how do we change over-reliance on just the apnea hypopnea index? And short answer is I don't know. If, if I did, I think we would have done that by now. Uh, I think ongoing research looking at other metrics of uh, predicting either sleep apnea prognosis in terms of complications or therapeutic responses, those sorts of papers I think would be quite valuable. And you know, I'm interested in some of this work being done on hypoxic burden and some of the other metrics there. 
you could probably get that sort of information off a pulse oximeter and maybe don't need a, a very expensive test to gain that sort of insight. Now, you, you mentioned the rich data set which we get. Uh, are we getting any closer to being able to use this data set to help, help make uh, clinical decisions? Uh, short answer is yes, and uh, I'm a bit guilty of, uh, you know, I published on this area, and so occasionally I'll give a talk, and somebody will come up to me three months later and said, oh, I started doing what you said. I started giving, a, you know, such and such drug to lower loop gain, and I say, well, <laughs> this is research we're talking about. We're not recommending this clinically, and I think until we have multi-center trials showing improved outcomes using these approaches, I think it would be premature to give clinical recommendations, but the short answer is yes. I can look at a patient in clinic. In fact, I'm going there... Um, this afternoon, and I can look at a patient and their sleep test and have a sense of what is their arousal threshold or what is their loop gain or what is uh, some other parameter. It may not change management today because we don't have sort of hard outcome data from that, but I think we're moving in that direction where I have a pretty good sense looking at a patient uh, which category they may fall into. Uh, two of uh, my former trainees, so Brad Edwards, had a paper in the Blue Journal with us a few years ago looking at predicting the arousal threshold just off a of PSG. It was really quite good. We could get more than 60% of the variance in the arousal threshold just off PSG parameters. And then similarly, Jeremy Orr here at UC San Diego had a paper in the Blue Journal a few years ago, a brief report, uh, getting the loop gain just off a home sleep test. And that was actually quite effective as well. We can just look at the ventilatory response over the disturbance and do some, uh, some signal processing on that and get a pretty good sense of somebody's control of breathing just using... Um, even just a home test. So I think we are moving in the right direction. If I could add, I, I mean, I agree with everything that Dr. Mohotra said. Um, and I don't mean to say that there's no reason to do a sleep study and get an AHI uh, for every patient. But I, I think there are some patients where the diagnosis is obvious, that the patient has classic symptoms or you know, more and more the patients are recording themselves and coming into clinic with recordings where I can hear their nocturnal apneic events. Um, there, there was a clinical trial led by Sam Kuna looking, comparing home sleep tests to in-lab studies in the VA system. And overall, the, the prevalence of sleep apnea was over 90% in that trial, even before they did any testing. And so the question becomes, do we really need to do tests in people who we have high uh, pretest probability in? Um, you know, CPAP is a safe intervention. Why can't we just do a trial of CPAP and see if the patient benefits? And if they do, then we're done and we didn't need to do any testing at all. Um, this belief that is in our sleep community that has then been transmitted to, to payers has really harmed patient care because we say that we, we don't know whether somebody has sleep apnea unless we get an AHI. And, and for a lot of my patients, I know seeing them in clinic, they have sleep apnea. Uh, and there is minimal downside to, to just a trial of treatment. Najib, at all, anything you want to add? Well, I guess my concern is if you take that approach and just say, basically put CPAP over the shelf is what people are, have suggested, just put it in the pharmacy and have people go buy a machine and see how it goes. My bias is that um, adherence would probably be quite poor. Uh, giving somebody empiric CPAP, I think, is a reasonable way to go when the pretest probability is very high. But when it comes to troubleshooting or, or when you talk to patients about perceived benefit or 
you know, adherence to therapy. I, I can see them falling off the wagon quite quickly if they don't really see the, the data that they're responding. I, I see patients all the time where I show them the improvements in hypoxia or I show them the improvements in their breathing index on and off treatment. And that has a big impact, I think, in terms of adherence. I don't have solid outcome data to say that, but my, my bias is just giving people therapy with, or giving people lifelong therapy without a, a solid diagnosis is probably going to lead to poor adherence. Yeah, this is uh, uh, Dr. Ives. I agree with that uh, as well. In fact, you know, I could argue, you could argue both ways uh, as well. But I think that uh, Sanjay is right in that there are certain individuals that you might be able to get by with a truncated study or a level three study, you know, those very obvious individuals. Um, I agree with, with Dr. Malhotra in that I would feel a little bit uncomfortable prescribing somebody long-term CPAP uh, based on no testing whatsoever. Uh, I could kind of see issues where uh, even though there may not be much a downside to CPAP, there is a substantial cost associated with CPAP as well. And as what Dr. Malhotra was saying is if we start to give CPAPs out in the malls, you know, for anyone who kind of walks by and charge their insurance company, I could see, uh, foresee uh, substantial problems, you know, with that type of uh, approach. In addition, I think there are a lot of individuals who have other concomitant disorders who need to be followed with CPAP just to ensure there's no other um, uh, problems going on uh, as well. Uh, I'm, maybe I'm kind of more of an optimist to get back to what um, Dr. Malhotra was saying. Um, I'm personally fairly optimistic that we're actually getting pretty close to really using in, uh, a lot of the data from the sleep study to really guide patient uh, care. I think there's a lot of advances uh, in terms of signal processing and machine learning. And those things can, can really take that data and can probably, at least in, in probably the medium or the short term, could really affect patient care in the, in the near future. But again, that's maybe an optimistic view of, um, of uh, what we can do with that data to really personalize our medical approach to sleep apnea. I can just chime in a little bit on the empiric CPAP question. I mean, just because we use CPAP empirically doesn't mean we have to turn it into the wild, wild west where we sort of set it and forget it. Um, I think if you're if you're gonna um, you know prescribe CPAP empirically, you need to follow up with the patient and uh, understand that the indications for which you prescribed it, you know, daytime sleepiness or you know poor sleep continuity actually improved, and so. Um, if you have that follow-up and you see that the that the symptoms, you know, the main thing, you know, pa main patient-centered outcome that we're we're looking to improve actually improves, then I think it's it's reasonable to um, to you know to engage in an empiric approach. I but I, I I would agree that you know just you know putting it on the shelf and you know treating it like the Ronco Showtime rotisserie oven where you set it and forget it, that's you know not going to be a good long-term solution. I, I agree with that, that it needs to be done in a careful way with follow-up, um, and, and that it's not for every patient. I understand that if the patient is ambivalent about treatment, then it certainly makes sense to get the study to try to show the patient why treatment might be beneficial to them. But I see a lot of patients who are begging for treatment. Um, I, I will also point out that this, this decision that we don't, that an AHI will tell you whether a patient's going to benefit has no scientific basis to it in reality, right? We all see that we keep changing the definition of hypopnea because we see that patients keep getting denied CPAP therapy based on an AHI threshold, even though we see those patients benefit when they are treated. And so we keep trying to mold the AHI into something that will predict benefit when, when the obvious way to predict benefit is to actually put them on treatment and see if they benefit.
Um, you know, I'll give two counter arguments to that. One is, I think there is a, a risk, as, as Dr. Aya said, to giving empiric therapy. It's not just the cost, there's psychosocial, there's other stuff. You miss, the, you treat somebody for the wrong diagnosis, you don't make the correct diagnosis for some time, and people could be miserable in that interim. I won't tell details, but uh, you know, I used to work somewhere where there was a, a neighboring center that would overdiagnose, in my, in my view, sleep apnea. I'd see patients all the time on CPAP who really didn't have the disease, and many of them were quite miserable, and they were seeing me for a third or fourth opinion, and taking them off treatment was the, the best gift I could give them in, in many cases. Uh, so I think there is some uh, uh, some downside. Regarding the AHI definition, at least in my view, part of the reason it changes is that the answer is it depends. You know, 4% Rash Punjabi has data on this. 4% T-sets predict hypertension. 2% T-sets predict insulin resistance. Um, arousals predict memory consolidation. Maybe duration of saturation below 90 predicts platelet aggregation. Nothing really predicts car accidents. And so, at least in my view, the it's not surprising the AHI definition keeps changing. And the hypopnea definition keeps changing because it depends. It depends on what is the outcome of interest. And so that argument that the, the AHI is not a good metric, I completely agree with, and that speaks to the need for better diagnostic testing, not eliminating it. Sanjay, if I can give you another leading question. Um, if we're going to do less polysomnography, uh, how is the field of sleep medicine uh, going to survive financially? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, I think we have to try to realign funding um, in sleep medicine with sort of improving patient outcomes and population health outcomes in order to come up with a long-term plan that, that's going to be viable. Um, the clear thing that, um, that has an, you know, that serves as an opportunity is that repeatedly studies show that 80 to 90% of people with sleep apnea are not getting treatment. So there's a huge volume of patients who are not getting any treatment. And the main reason that is, is because there's such a slow pipeline to be able to get patients in to, to be tested in a sleep lab and see a sleep specialist. If we simplify the process, we have the ability to greatly increase the volume of patients we see, and that will certainly help um, offset the losses from not doing polysomnography. But I think we also have to try to um, convince payers to pay for the things that will improve health outcomes. So there's increasing research that shows that telemonitoring um, increases adherence to CPAP. And so there's an opportunity to try to, to obtain reimbursement for those services. Similarly, spending time with patients and you know, providing motivational enhancement or you know, helping them overcome their ambivalence to CPAP. Those are all things that we spend a lot of time on but aren't adequately, re adequately reimbursed. And so to the extent we can convince payers that those are worthwhile things to do, um, we can find other opportunities to, to make up the, the financial losses from not making complicated diagnoses. Now, the other point which has come up is patients come to us with symptoms, not just a, not a diagnosis, and that sleep apnea is just one sleep disorder. Your, how effective is home testing in diagnosing the other sleep disorders, and even patients with sleep apnea who have comorbid, comorbid disease? 
Uh, yeah, well, I think that's an excellent question. But before I get back, I just wanted to go back to the AHI for a second as well. Uh, I do agree with what's been said that the AHI is not a perfect uh, number and it's not a perfect index. Uh, however, I would argue and say that to a certain extent it's gotten a bit of a bad rap that maybe it hasn't. Uh, I think that across the board, in general, as the AHI increases, it does seem to be associated with um, with various uh, long-term health outcomes as well. So in terms of cardiovascular disease or occupational injuries or um, you know daytime sleepiness, those things, uh, the the extent of the relationship is reasonably weak, but for all physiologic type of measures, the relationship between symptoms and physiologic measures is quite quite small. So if you look at the relationship between dyspnea and FEV1, that's quite small, or between ejection fraction and symptoms of heart failure, that's quite small as well. So I don't know if the AHI necessarily is any worse than those other things uh, as well. Uh, my own personal feeling is that I think you have to look at the patient in general, and I'm not saying that symptoms are not important because clearly symptoms are important, then that's what patients usually will come and complain of. Uh, however, I think that just relying on symptoms by themselves, whether they be the response to therapy or the presenting complaint, is, I think, um, you know, fraught with problems as well. So just relying on symptoms without any kind of objective testing, I wouldn't particularly uh, advise that for a, a variety of, of very obvious uh, reasons, some of which has to do with, with gain, some of it has to do with placebo effect or these other issues uh, as well. Now, to get back to the question that you were talking about with the level threes, um, I don't think we necessarily know. Most of the studies that have used level threes have tended to uh, not study those patients with particular comorbidities, whether they include bad COPD or heart failure or these other things as well. I don't think that necessarily means the level threes aren't that effective in that population. I just don't think they've been studied in, in as much uh, detail. However, saying that though, given that they haven't been used in a lot of these populations, I think that making diagnosis based on a level three with concomitant comorbidities um, may be uh, problematic in some of those individuals as well. Now, clearly there are certain um, diseases that are going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to diagnose by standard level three. So these include like periodic limb movements of sleep or other um, problems in terms of sleep architecture as well. I think that we've all had the uh, experience as well that having done a lot of level threes and a lot of level ones, that clearly you do get a lot more information with the level one studies. And I think that in general, studies have shown that if you do a level one and a level three, in general, the physician is actually more confident of the diagnosis with the level one. Now, again, from a cost standpoint or those things, then that might be uh, a bit different. But I think that um, in general, it does give you a little bit more confidence in the diagnosis as well. Uh, I can say that for our my own personal practice, if I had someone with severe heart failure and I was worried about central sleep apnea or concomitant periodic limb movements of sleep, then I would probably just go to a level one study as opposed to a level three. So if, if I could just respond to Dr. Ayas, I, I, I think he's not completely accurate in physician confidence. The best study to look at this was done by Chingli Chai Kotzer in, in the Annals of Internal Medicine where they compared a level one, level three, or just oximetry. And what she and her team found was that oximetry was associated with substantially reduced confidence in physicians, but a level three and a level one had equivalent amount of physician confidence and no difference in patient outcomes at follow-up. So I don't think there's really any evidence that physicians have um, less confidence or, or more difficulty treating patients suspected of sleep apnea with a level three instead of a level one study. Um, I, I think there are certainly sleep disorders that can't be diagnosed with a level three study 
such as narcolepsy, other hypersomnia disorders. Um, I, I'm not sure periodic limb movement disorder is a real disorder. We, we have zero evidence that treating that polysomnographic finding has any improved, results in any improved outcome for patients. So uh, it's not clear that that really needs to be diagnosed. And as far as comorbidities, although there aren't randomized trials in patients with comorbid heart failure or other um, diseases as such, there, there are small studies that show that they can be used and have been used in the VA health system and in other um, settings where, where level one polysomnography is not available. And so we do have some confidence that diagnoses can be made using uh, level three studies in patients with comorbidities. We just don't have randomized control trial data. So Atoll, in your editorial, you described uh, two or three situations where obtaining PSG data might be crucial with patients presented with possible sleep apnea. Can you just uh, discuss those? Uh, sure. So at least it happens in um, many circumstances where patients are highly motivated either to get a diagnosis of sleep apnea or not to get a diagnosis of sleep apnea. And at least at UC San Diego, within the umbrella we live, we have the, the Veterans Affairs uh, Hospital and we have the occupational medicine. We, we take care of lots of uh, patients. Uh, within the um, uh, government uh, um, situation, that there are patients who are highly motivated to get what's called service-related disability, where if they get diagnosed with sleep apnea, they get associated disability. Um, and so many of those patients are highly motivated to get a sleep apnea diagnosis. And in that context, snoring and sleepiness are highly prevalent. And, um, and that's their motivation. It's human nature that they report uh, those kinds of symptoms. In contrast, patients who are in the occupational setting where they run the risk of losing their license or having issues with um, uh, work safety or whatnot, they tend to downplay symptoms. I believe Alan Pack had some data on that as well, where snoring and sleepiness are close to zero in some of those sort of settings. And we can say the patient reported outcomes are the most important, which I certainly acknowledge that it's important. But in those contexts, I think objective data are crucial. And uh, we've done some work on that as well, trying to stratify who may or may not need a sleep test uh, in situations where self-report may be unreliable. To come back to the earlier question, though, about um, you know, how's the field going to survive without polysomnography? I think it is an important question, but, you know, there must have been at some point people talking about the pneumoencephalogram or some other antiquated test that's no longer uh, required, saying how are we going to survive without it? I don't think that's a good argument to, to hold on to. I think if technology improves and we can get diagnostic and prognostic inter information adequately without an expensive test, I think, I think that's great. Uh, I think as the world moves more from volume-based purchasing to value-based purchasing where we get reimbursed according to making uh, patients' outcomes improve or preventing a stroke or preventing hypertension or whatever we're doing, I think that's the, that should be our focus in terms of moving forward rather than trying to hold on to a test that may be antiquated. On the other hand, getting more value out of that test would certainly help us with value-based purchasing as well. Good point. Yeah, this is um, uh, Dr. Ayas again. Yeah, no, I agree with uh, Atul uh, as well that I think that, um, you know, we really need to look at the, the PSG and see what data that we can get out of it. Uh, I agree that the argument that, well, you know, we need to have PSG just so that we have enough money for our fields, probably not an effective treatment. It's not particularly good for society. It's not good for patients in the long run as well. Saying that, though, I think there is a lot of value that we have in the polysomnogram. We just haven't used it in, in great detail. And I think that there are a lot of opportunities to do that in the near future. Uh, just to get back 
to um, Dr. Patel's point in terms of the um, uh, physician confidence in the diagnosis, um, the paper that I was talking about was the same one that he had quoted. But in that paper, uh, if you actually looked at the uh, confidence of the sleep physicians after uh, level one, three, and four studies, it definitely was higher after the level one studies. So if you actually look at in the uh, confidence of the, the sleep physician diagnostic confidence, uh, when, when they graded 90%, that is that they were very confident of the diagnosis, that was found in 64% of the individuals who had a level one study versus 54% in the level threes and then 38% in the level fours. Although it might have only been statistically significant between one and four, I think it's very obvious that there is a uh, step down from the level one to the level three as well. And I think that we've all had this um, um, you know, experience where you get the level three study and you might not be completely um, uh, convinced of the diagnosis, but with the level one, you, all, you do seem to be more confident of the diagnosis uh, as well. So I've got two more questions before we wrap up. Um, should the standard of care be using polysomnography until we have studies which show home sleep apnea uh, testing leads to equivalent or better outcomes, or should the standard of care be home sleep apnea testing until there are studies showing uh, that polysomnography provides benefit over home sleep apnea testing? Sanjay, you, you helped pose this question. Uh, do you want to go first? Yeah, so I think this is a really important question facing our field. So for patients where, you know, you're ordering the test because you suspect sleep apnea, we now have many randomized trials that show that there's equivalence in patient outcomes um, doing a polysomnogram or a home sleep test. At the same time, I think you have to recognize that there are clear advantages for the patient in doing home sleep testing over polysomnography from increased uh, convenience, increased patient preference, decreased costs, uh, increased accessibility. You know, there are, many there are many patients who can't find transportation at night to get to a sleep lab or find care for, you know, their children or, or you know, another person who, who they help take care of at night. Um, for all of these people, um, home sleep testing is just much more accessible than in lab sleep studies. And now we have the COVID epidemic on top of that. Um, so there's no evidence that there's improved outcomes from polysomnography in any subgroup of patients with suspected sleep apnea. And there's clear benefits of home sleep testing. We have, I think, 10 randomized trials at this point it seems, you know, it seems silly to me to hold home sleep testing to a higher standard than polysomnography. Um, we have no study showing polysomnography is better than home sleep testing in any subgroup of patients, but home sleep testing is clearly more convenient to patients. So it seems to me that home sleep testing should be the standard. I'm certainly open to research in certain subgroups to try to see if polysomnography might be better but until that research is done, why wouldn't we do what patients prefer? Yeah. Um, no, I think uh, Dr. Patel brings up some excellent points and it's hard to uh, argue with that. Um, I think that um, you know, the argument that you should prove something is effective before doing it, especially if the intervention actually costs more 
than another, you know, certainly is reasonable. So I think that if you make the argument that in most of the randomized controlled trials that have been done, it seems that there's not a huge difference between level threes and uh, level one polysom and level three studies and level one studies in terms of directing patient care in multiple uh, studies across multiple countries. I think that is uh, correct, and it's clear that the level three studies are definitely a lot less expensive than the level one studies uh, as well. So I think that if you took that view, I think that that would be a very reasonable view. Now, saying that, though, I'm going to give you the other side of the coin uh, as well that we talked about um, in our editorial. Uh, number one, just to get back to Dr. Malhotra's comment, the reality is that we're really not using a lot of the information of the polysomnogram. So I do agree with Dr. Patel in that if the only reason for getting the polysomnogram is to get an AHI so you could get funding from somebody to use CPAP, then yeah, I agree that you know, doing level one studies doesn't really make sense at all. However, I think that we are very close to kind of using a lot of that data and hopefully being able to direct patients uh, in, in, um, in with more personalized management with the information from the PSG. And I think that that's probably going to come sooner than later. The problem is if we completely shift over and we only start doing level threes and we basically don't do any level ones at all, we might lose that opportunity to really uh, take advantage of a lot of the research that's being currently being done. Now, again, Dr. Patel would argue and say, well, that's not really a reason to do that at this point because of the costs that are associated with this. And that's, I think, a very reasonable argument uh, to make uh, as well. In terms of patients liking the level threes better than the level ones, I don't know if I 100% agree with that. I agree that you know, for a lot of individuals, they prefer to do the study at home, and a lot of them would prefer doing that. However, saying that, though, there are a certain group of individuals who actually would prefer to do the level ones. You know, uh, some of them are individuals who have a lot of difficulty, um, you know, for medical reasons or other reasons, actually um, administering the test uh, at home, or individuals who really want to be more confident about what the diagnosis is as well. So definitely, when I've given people the option of level threes or one, there are certainly a minority of individuals, but a substantial minority minority who actually would prefer to do the level one. So I don't know if I completely agree with the argument that most patients would actually prefer to do the level threes as well. Okay, so final question, sort of asking perhaps the same thing in a different way. Um, what will be the role of polysomnography moving forward, Luke? We, we face a huge task in providing care for you know, over a billion patients with OSA worldwide, the vast majority of whom are undiagnosed. Um, and we need to take that, that test seriously and double down on approaches OSA diagnosis and management to maximize value to our patients and improve meaningful patient-centered outcomes. It's a tall order, and we really don't have room for waste. PSG is a resource-intensive and inconvenient test that's difficult to access for many patients, although, you know, as Dr. Ias mentioned, some patients may prefer it. Um, but in the most reliable estimates available, patients prefer um, PS, uh, home testing over PSG by a margin of three to one, uh, especially patients coming from uh, marginalized communities. Uh, in light of these limitations, you know, my, my view is that we should only um, use PSG uh, in areas where it clearly leads to benefit. And right now, we don't have evidence of areas where it clearly leads to benefit in the trials available. Um, and so for you know, in my opinion, for patients referred for diagnosis and management of OSA, PSG should chiefly be relegated to cases where the patient has attempted the ambulatory approach, is not improving, uh, or if there's, um, you know, a strong a priori suspicion to diagnose a sleep condition other than OSA, like parasomnia. Um, you know, in the future, we may find that there are subpopulations of OSA that can be readily identified by PSG, where endotyping, you know, yields outcomes um, that are superior enough to justify PSG's 
role as the primary testing modality. However, the benefit of such personalization would need to overcome the known cost to PSG in terms of access, patient preference, and convenience. Promises of you know, pers future personalization of care are great, but they ring pretty hollow for the many patients whose individual barriers to obtaining the PSG are not currently being considered. Um, and so until you know, PSG demonstrates its worth, it's, um, it's okay for it to be reserved for refractory cases, in my opinion. You know, the analogy is made for the PSG being the baby in the bathwater. PSG, it's not a baby. It's had decades to develop and decades to show its worth. It's, you know, in my experience, I think it's more like the 30-year-old kid who's living in your basement and hasn't held a job or done chores in the better half of the decade. It's okay to ask PSG to start pulling its weight as the default testing modality or move into second position. Okay, Atul, you have the final word. I'm not sure the baby bathwater thing has anything to do with the age of the child. It's more the concept of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, which I think, <laughs> I think is, was the argument there. Um, I'll say one or two things just in closing, and uh, I think we're agreeing more than disagreeing here, and it's been a, a fun uh, discussion, so thank you, everybody, for participating. I think there is one argument we haven't talked about, and that is um, the value of teaching and education and, and the value of the polysomnogram for, for learning about sleep. I think a lot of that's being lost. The same argument happened with Swan-Gans catheters. People said, when those go away, how are we going to teach hemodynamics? And indeed, I think that is an issue. So that's something we should talk about as a field as well. How do we get people interested in uh, learning about sleep when uh, the situation has been reduced to essentially a pulse oximeter? So that's one uh, comment. Second comment is about uh, patient preferences. I, I do think all the things being equal, that patient preferences uh, should be important, both in terms of diagnostics and in terms of therapeutics. But in some cases, I'm not confident that they're equivalent. So, for example, I mentioned earlier that arousal seems to be important with our work and others uh, regarding memory and, and sleep fragmentation, those other things. And I think um, we don't need to sort of do a randomized trial to, to prove that because there, there are good data saying that arousal predicts memory and hypoxia doesn't, at least in, in some studies. And the final comment is, you know, we've been talking about home sleep testing as a generic kind of thing. There, there are some products that can measure arousal. I don't think it's that complicated of an engineering challenge to get further data from the home test, and perhaps that should be a call to action as well, is that it may not be either or. We could make the PSG better by using the data more wisely. Perhaps we could make the HST better by keeping it cheap and um, uh, accessible, but also perhaps provide more data that way. And so I think we're, again, agreeing more than disagreeing, and this may be a good opportunity to uh, uh, work together in terms of finding solutions. That's great. So I I'd like to thank Drs. Patel, Donovan, Ayers, and Mahotra for this lively discussion. Uh, to the listener, to read the articles discussed in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, you can also subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe and, and have a great day. Thank you.